0: Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. Subscribe to SubChina's daily, newly designed China Access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources. Or check out all the original writing on our website at subchina.com. We've got reported stories, essays and editorials, great explainers and trackers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region to Beijing's ambitious plans to shift the Chinese economy onto a post-carbon footing. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from midtown Manhattan today. This week, I'm delighted to welcome back Ali Wine, who listeners to the show may remember from his previous turns a couple of years ago. Ali was with the Rand Corporation back then, but is now a senior analyst with the Eurasia Group's global macro geopolitics practice focusing on U.S.-China relations and great power competition. Ali is the author of a new book called America's Great Power Opportunity, Revitalizing U.S. Foreign Policy to Meet the Challenges of Strategic Competition. It's a book full of ideas that had me nodding in emphatic agreement as I read it, and it really cracks open the truly big questions over the direction of American foreign policy. At its heart, it is a critique of the great power competition framing that has arguably come to dominate thinking, at least within the beltway. But Ali also offers his own blueprint for what U.S. foreign policy could still be. Ali Wine, welcome back to Seneca, man. Kaiser, thank you so much for having me. It's really a privilege to be with you again. Well it's it's really my pleasure and and congratulations on the book which I really enjoyed. Thank you. So Ali, let's start with this, you know, what is wrong with the basic framing that is now so ubiquitous as I've said among so many policy elites in the United States of great power competition.
1: So I think the basic or one of the basic problems is Descriptively, I think it's reasonably sound. It captures an important set of dynamics in contemporary geopolitics. Prescriptively, and I make that distinction in the book, I think prescriptively it's more problematic. And and I would set forth sort of three main critiques of of great power competition as a policymaking framework. I think the first critique is it risks advancing a defensive, reactive approach to America's principal nation state competitors, namely China and Russia, rather than a proactive, confident approach to those uh, two competitors. And I think that it's a reactive defensive approach that if left unchecked, um, it could le- it could feed this impulse to compete with those two countries ubiquitously rather than selectively. And at a time when the United States' relative influence is already declining, I think the ubiquitous contestation as opposed to selective contestation would accelerate America's relative decline. So that's critique number one. Mm-hmm. I think the second critique, uh, and I, I think that this critique is actually a source of, of optimism, a quiet optimism or uh, quiet confidence for, for the United States is that I think that it needlessly aggrandizes China and Russia's much vaunted strategic acumen. I mean, China and Russia, they are formidable competitors, they're multifaceted competitors, uh, but they're not necessarily 10 feet tall when it comes to their strategic vision. I mean, You look at China and you look at its growing estrangement from many advanced industrial democracies. Russia, obviously, with its invasion of Ukraine, has committed a really extraordinary act of strategic self-sabotage. So the second critique is, that it it inflates, I think, their strategic acumen. And then the third and final critique that I, I try to set forth in, in the book, and, and I imagine we'll discuss, uh, you know, this morning, is I think that if we focus too much on great power competition as a policymaking framework, I think that we risk characterizing cooperative undertakings with those two competitors as fool's errands at best and, and perhaps even worse as exhibitions of strategic weakness.
0: Excellent. Uh, very good. Yeah, and uh, really the central argument in your book is, you know, as you say, uh, all about... Uh, not being reactive, not forming our foreign policy vis-a-vis China, especially just sort of in response to what it wants and what it does. and uh, I think that's that's it's excellent. What would you consider to be the peer literature on this topic? Uh, are there other books that have come out in the last couple of years that undertake to do this same thing that to sort of put forth an American grand strategy and, and to critique uh, you know this this framing in terms of of great power competition?
1: So I would I would say a book that came out last year uh, called Stronger by Ryan Haas. Uh, Ryan Haas is not only in in Inside the Beltway, but I would say in the world he is one of the most authoritative voices on uh, Chinese foreign policy, U.S. China relations. And now in in my book, so my my book is is much shorter than his, and and his focus is primarily on U.S. China relations. I, I try to talk a little bit about. Russia as well, but I think, and I certainly wouldn't wouldn't want to put words in Ryan's mouth, but my understanding of his core argument in Stronger is that yes, the United States does need to compete with China selectively; it needs to be vigilant, but at the same time that we don't want to be complacent in appraising China's resurgence, we also don't want to succumb to consternation. And Ryan, in his book, he focuses. One, on how we can right-size the competitive challenge from China so that we find that midway point between complacence and consternation. But also, he really emphasizes the imperative of domestic renewal. If the United States is not able to address more effectively its own socioeconomic challenges, if it's not able to renew its own internal sources of competitive advantage, it's not going to be able to compete effectively with, with China. And I try to advance a comparable argument in my book.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, well, Ryan's book, which I've read and which I've talked to him about on this program, uh, is excellent. And I could not help but th- notice that there was not a
1: ton of daylight between your
0: position and his.
1: Not at all. He is, I mean, so Ryan is someone, uh, he's a mentor. Uh, he is. Uh, he's not only been a tremendous champion personally, and he very graciously lent his imprimatur to the book, but he, in terms of forming my own views on On America's role in the world, on U.S.-China relations, Uh, you know, Ryan's counsel has been indispensable. So, uh, not surprising that there isn't too much daylight between our arguments. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I should add that Ryan is like my favorite person in the world. I mean, he's just such a wonderful human being, a Boy
0: Scout, like an exemplary American. I I feel like, yeah, yeah. Anyway. (laughs) <laughs> you, you use you use the phrase "competitive coexistence a couple of times in the book uh that is a phrase that I also use, and um maybe if if I had to pick my f- favorite sort of two word framing um that's the one I'd go uh also a good one i think it it really originates for me at least in my world with Damien Ma, my very good friend uh, I wonder whether you offer it up as kind of an alternative framework because you didn't really drill down on that. That you know competitive coexistence idea so much, but it does crop up. Ryan um, Ryan put forward competitive interdependence, uh, which I also very much like, which I think is is also a good way to capture what's going on here. Uh, what's your preferred phrase if you had to categorize uh, the U.S.-China relationship?
1: I, I think it would be competitive coexistence, I and mean, and there are various, or I should say, there are variants of that phrase. So one could talk about strained cohabitation, one could talk about ambiguous coevolution. So they but they basically all capture the same idea. Um, I think that one of the challenges in thinking about conceptualizing the U.S.-China relationship is, I don't think that the United States or China is going to be able to achieve a decisive victory over the other. And the United States, in its history, when it thinks about its principal experiences with major external challengers, it's accustomed to thinking about, and, and not just to thinking about, but to achieving decisive victory. So you look at Imperial Japan, you look at Nazi Germany, you look at the Soviet Union. So the United States can look at those confrontations and say, there was a clear victor, there was a clear loser. In the case of China, there are uh, there are competitive dynamics that inhere in that relationship. When you have the world's preeminent power facing its principal challenger, there are competitive dynamics that inhere, but there are also cooperative necessities. And as much as Washington and Beijing might presently be loath to admit the necessity of cooperative undertakings, and as much as this point might seem hackneyed, I'm going to bring it up anyway, because I think it's an important point. I don't see a scenario in which the United States can advance its own vital, leaving aside China, I don't see a scenario in which the United States can advance its own vital national interests on the full panoply of transnational challenges, climate change, pandemic disease, uh, arms control, and the like, without maintaining some cooperative space with with China. So there are competitive elements that inhere in the relationship. There are cooperative undertakings that will be required increasingly of the relationship. And and there really isn't a, an end state per se. These are two, con- these are two linchpins of global order. Uh, I don't think that for all of their internal and external challenges that either one of them is primed to disintegrate. I think that they will endure and cohabitate in perpetuity. And so then the question for the two countries becomes not how to achieve a decisive victory over one another or how to effect a power transition between the two, but how to forge competitive coexistence and forge a, a, a strained and uncomfortable cohabitation. But I don't see any other viable alternative.
0: Yeah, no, that's 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 uh, very well put, very well put. And I think that hackneyed as it is, it just needs to be you know shouted from the rafters again and again. I mean, this is absolutely very, very important. So like I said, there's a central argument in your book, and that is that the United States should focus on its own renewal and pursue a grand strategy that isn't focused on what other major state actors are doing. And, and by that, you chiefly mean China and maybe to a lesser extent, Russia, uh, a strategy that isn't dictated by what they do, right? And yet- The bulk of your book is really taken up talking about China and about Russia. And as we'll we'll get to later, you submitted your manuscript before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, There's an afterword in the book that addresses that. Anyway, uh, this to me seems to be like the central tension of the book that the really difficult thing to navigate uh, is that. Is it possible to articulate an American foreign policy approach, perhaps even an American grand strategy that isn't? Dependent in any way on what the other so-called great powers want, what the other great powers do.
1: So, Kaiser, I mean, you've identified not only one of the core tensions, but really it gets to a question that I, I hasten to note, I struggled with when I wrote the book. I continue to struggle with now, and you know, so I intend the book to be a conversation starter, and I and I hope that it will stimulate conversation, discussion, debate around questions such as this one. Uh, one of the the thought experiments that I, I contemplated when I was writing the book, I didn't get too far, but if we were to do a fill in the blank exercise, if we were to say America's purpose in the world should be, or America's purposes in the world should be fill in the blank. And the thought experiment is how fully could you fill in that blank without once mentioning China or Russia? It's difficult. Right. And, and as you see with my book, I spend a lot of time talking about China or Russia. So it is difficult. The point that I would make in terms of, it's not a good answer, but it's perhaps it, it, it might lead to an answer is to whether the United States can formulate a foreign policy that isn't so beholden to the decisions that China and Russia make. I think I make this point in the book that the United States, it can influence China's external conduct. The United States can influence Russia's external conduct. It can't unilaterally dictate the decisions that those two countries make. There are only two phenomena over which the United States has full control the united states has full control over the decisions it elects to make and full control over the decisions that it elects not to make mm-hmm. and it's for that reason that when you focus on here's here's the universe of what i meaning the united states here's what the here's what the universe looks like of what i can fully control you then begin to focus more on renewing your own sources of competitive strength and focusing on renewing your sources of competitive strength of course doesn't mean that you're oblivious to what your competitors are doing but one you appreciate the limits to your unilateral influence and two rather than contemplating ubiquitous competition, you think more about selective competition. So I would say, again, not a good answer, but just sort of a partial way of thinking about getting to an answer is, what can we fully control? We can fully control the decisions we make and don't make. Uh, That recognition in turn leads to more of a focus on renewing our sources of competitive advantage while placing China and Russia uh, in their proper competitive perspective.
0: But I, I wonder in this very, very complex world that we inhabit, whether that is necessary, whether it's desirable, or even possible—I mean, there are so few values that anyone can articulate that both of the American political parties can really get squarely behind. Uh, even as I agree that the, the U.S. you know shouldn't have its uh, foreign policy dictated by what our competitors are doing, it feels like in this world of you know kind of overwhelming hyper information, it, it, it feels not possible to just avoid reacting just to events in the world. It feels like the agenda, uh, the priorities of governments, uh, th- this ends up getting set entirely by
1: the, you know, stochastic rhythms of news. I mean, so Kaiser, you're absolutely right. And and I recognize that, you know, a lot of the arguments that I put forth in the book, they you know, they sound good in the abstract. The question is how do you operationalize them? And, and particularly, how do you operationalize them not only given sort of growing complexity abroad and growing chaos abroad, but also just the realities, the very sort of messy realities of America's domestic politics. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. so so inevitably, um, so part of US foreign policy invariably and properly is going to be reactive because we can't we can contemplate alternative futures, but we don't know which of those alternative futures is actually going to come to pass. And so right. so just as an example, take the coronavirus pandemic, it's not as though epidemiologists hadn't been warning that there could be and that there likely would be a pandemic, another pandemic But in terms of where the pandemic would originate, when it would originate, what the transmission mechanisms would be, so on and so forth, so the particular manifestations were difficult, were are sort of impossible to uh, predict. So you have the coronavirus pandemic, and then take Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, It's not as though observers hadn't been hadn't envisioned the possibility that Russia could invade, but because there was a sense that Russia would incur so many costs were it to invade, I think that a lot of observers said that if if Putin is engaging in the kind of cost benefit calculus that many observers perhaps in the west engage in that those, those the, the that cost benefit calculus would dissuade him obviously it didn't so you're absolutely right that when you think about and and now you look at the coronavirus pandemic you look at Russia's invasion of Ukraine two profoundly different but you know comparably destabilizing shocks to the international system that have occurred in a very compressed uh, frame time frame of course we have to respond i think the point that i try to make in the book is that sort of building into your foreign policy, the the inevitability that some of your conduct is going to be reactive because there are going to be shocks to the system. There are going to be shocks at home. So building in the, the reality, the inevitability that some of your foreign policy will be reactive. The question is not how to formulate a foreign policy that is wholly proactive because a wholly proactive foreign policy, it exists in the abstract. It can't exist in reality. But are there steps that the United States can take to To make to make the balance a little bit less lopsided. And that is to say, are there steps that we can take so that even if a substantial part of US foreign policy is necessarily reactive, that we build in a certain place for proactive foreign policy? And that's where I try, and that's why I try to focus on, again, sort of renewing our sources of competitive advantage. I think the more that we can focus on renewal as kind of being our lodestar. the more that we focus on renewal as being our foundation, not only will we be able to put our foreign policy on a more stable footing, but I would argue um, the more we will be able to manage those systemic shocks as they arise. So again, not a, not a good answer, but I hope that we can strike a better balance so that our foreign policy is at least a little bit more proactive rather than being entirely reactive.
0: Not a bad answer, Ali, really. <laughs> Give yourself a little credit here. Listen, um, I want to get to those sources of, of strength and, and uh, you know what we should be focusing on in American renewal, but I want to talk a little bit about Russia and China. Throughout your book, you, you append a little epithet to the two countries respectively. Uh, you say, resurgent China, revanchist Russia. This phrase, uh, the four words appear together many, many, many times throughout the book. I think it's an important distinction. If, if I had to boil down, you know, down to a single modifier for each country, I I think I'd say you chose well. I mean, I I would probably go with the same thing. But when it comes to these two countries, there's there's a tension between, you know, you're pairing them so often as, as, you know, you've even done on this show so far already. Sure. Um, sure. On the one hand, there's that pairing. And on the other hand, you have this effort to draw attention to the very important distinctions between Russia and China. They're, They're different intentions. They're different capabilities. Their their disparate respective postures toward the international order, right? And it goes on. So,
1: was this something that you found yourself wrestling with? Absolutely. I and I, I wrestled with it when I wrote the book because I. So I, I actually, interestingly, just in terms of I think it, and it gets to your question. It's sort of an interesting sequencing point. So I I have a chapter on China, and then I have a chapter on on sort of the Russian competitive challenge, and then looking at the sign of Russian entente. I actually, in terms of sequencing, because one of my when I before I wrote the book, I had been saying to myself when I looked at the 2017 National Security Strategy and when I looked at the 2018 National Defense Strategy, one of the concerns that I had was precisely this juxtaposition. If you group China and Russia together uh, analytically, despite their different approaches to uh, to world order, their different approaches to foreign policy, that anal- that continued almost incessant analytical a juxtaposition, it does begin to shape policy in terms of how you approach it. If, if rather than approaching China and Russia in a variegated manner, you end up sort of priming yourself to to formulate foreign policy towards them as a collective analytical unit when clearly you need to disaggregate. And so, right. so I had said to myself, when I set out to write the book, I said, I need to make sure that I don't fall into that trap. And so I, I began writing about some of the differences between China and Russia. But then as you point out, Invariably, I ended. I do end up talking a lot about uh, China and Russia in juxtaposition. So it is a tension that I, I grappled with, and I would. Uh, but I, I, but getting to your point, I think it's incredibly important. I think one of the reasons for the juxtaposition. It's not so much. And, and I didn't. I, I didn't do as good a job of this as I, I I should have in the book. I think one of the reasons for the for the frequent juxtaposition of the book. It's not so much that I was juxtaposing them to say, look at how similar they are. I was juxtaposing them just because these are sort of the two nation state competitors that are so much on America's mind right now. And so the juxtaposition had less to do with saying, conveying a judgment that they're analytically similar or that in policy-making terms are similar. It was more that here are the two countries that the competitors of the United States is worried about. But just one, one point, you're absolutely right. Um, I don't think that the United States is going to be able to pry apart China and Russia or orchestrate some reverse Nixon or prevail upon... You know, China, at least for the time being, to loosen its embrace of of Russia. But having said that, um, I think that the United States shouldn't be taking steps to actively drive them together even more. And right. so, to that you know, to that end, it's very important that the United States uh, recognizes that a so I'm going to use those descriptors now that a resurgent China and a revanchist Russia they obviously do pose very different competitive challenges. So, um, so just I'll enumerate a few of those. Yeah, please. I think that China is because it's resurgent. It is. Uh, it accounts for a growing share of the world economy it's increasingly embedded into the post-war order however you conceptualize it and i think that for that reason uh, china tends to be less risk-taking in its foreign Mm -hmm. policy than russia Uh, russia obviously we're seeing with its invasion of ukraine russia feels substantial russia is i shouldn't say feels russia is substantially less integrated into the post-war order it feels substantially more aggrieved uh, by the consolidation of that system i think it's more risk-taking and i think we see with its invasion of ukraine that Russia believes that, or I, I, I would submit that Russia believes that it can demonstrate or reaffirm its status as an enduring power more effectively by destabilizing the current system than by integrating itself further into it. So, so China is less risk-taking; it's resurgent. I think Russia is more risk-taking; it's less integrated. Uh, and so even when we talk about China and Russia, it's, it's certainly true that they, they collectively share a number of grievances against the United States. They share a number of grievances against the, the post-war order. But I think that they, the manners in which they channel those grievances are very different. And so yeah. I think that U.S. foreign policy should recognize those distinctions. And even if it seems right now that it might be difficult to, uh, to pry the countries apart, we shouldn't be actively pushing them together. So, let's go back to the idea of renewal. I mean it's probably not surprising to any listeners
0: uh, to this podcast or readers of your book that you would list America's ability to attract talent from all over the world it's uh it's very you know optimistic demographic outlook right uh, still a growing population in in you know related to that in large part because of immigration. It's great research universities still ten of the top 20 universities in the world. Its network of allies, and, and and on and on. I mean, all these go in the plus column pretty unequivocally. I think most people listening would certainly agree. Also, uh, with you know the list of, of 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 things that you identify as problems, and I think our our well-meaning allies would also identify them as fundamental problems: massive political polarization, our embarrassingly inept handling of the COVID nineteen pandemic, um, the increasing. Wealth and, and income inequality we're seeing in this country, uh, racism, crumbling infrastructure. And speaking for myself, I, I am, I'm all for, you know, prioritizing domestic renewal for sure. But at the same time, look, we live in linear time and the rest of the world isn't going to stand still as we focus on national renewal. So where do we start? I mean, I feel like this week has been a really great illustration of, of this tension because, you know, the House passed the CHIPS Act on Thursday and Arguably, that is, you know, all about national renewal and in a very good way, you know, to, to reshore semiconductor uh, manufacturing. And I think that's important. But also, this whole week, we've been talking about the Speaker of the House's planned trip to Taiwan. Uh, and that's clearly something, you know, that came up in Xi's phone call with Biden yesterday. So so given the way that you frame the American debate over China, I imagine you must have perspectives on these things, Um uh, you know, where does th- do things like the CHIPS Act fit or uh, the, you know, Innovation and Competition Act? Uh, are these simply reactions to China uh, and to China's rise of the sort that you don't want us to undertake? Or are these earnest efforts at
1: national renewal that you do want us to undertake? Sure. So I, I think the Chips Act is is, is a good example. Uh, it's a good example of where competitive anxiety can be a spur for I think good internal renewal. And I and I do want to make the point that even you know, even though I, I try to caution in the book against you know aggrandizing the competitive challenges from from China and Russia, even though I say that the, the U.S. foreign policy should not be beholden to the decisions that China and Russia make, competitive anxiety in and of itself is uh, I would say it's kind of value neutral. Uh, the question is how you channel that competitive anxiety. And I think if you look at Pacific American history, we've seen we've seen very ugly downsides to how competitive anxiety has been channeled in terms of othering you know, racial minorities or othering ethnic minorities in demonizing certain populations. So there are very, very clear downsides to how the United States has historically channeled competitive anxiety. But it also has been a source of uh, scientific and technological innovation. Uh, and critically and importantly, it's also been a, a spur for many cases uh, for social progress. If you look at many of, if you look at Brown versus Board of Education, sort of a landmark Supreme Court decision, if you look at sure. critical pieces of civil rights legislation, um, they were spurred in considerable part by anxiety over uh, the Soviet Union's propaganda about America's treatment of, of racial minorities. So I think that the Chips Act is a good example where competitive anxiety can be a spur for internal renewal. What I worry about, and here is where I, I would make, where I would try to introduce a wrinkle, um, competitive anxiety. I think it can be one lever, but it should be or it should, can be one tool for internal renewal. But it should be one tool in a very large toolkit. We shouldn't be using it as a crutch. And in other words, um, the United States should not require invo- should not require the invocation of China or the invocation of Russia in order to uh, take care of. Uh, its citizens in order to repair crumbling infrastructure, in order to modernize its educational system. If that competitive anxiety can help spur reforms that the United States should have been undertaking anyway, all for the better. But I worry about the extent to which the United States absent those external competitors seems paralyzed at home. So the yeah, TIPS Act, yeah. it's good. It's, it, it's, it's good. Uh, and I think that it's an important example of how competitive anxiety can, can spur internal renewal, but competitive anxiety should not be a substitute for steps that we should have been taking anyway. One well, thing that you bring up, and I think really constructively,
0: is this whole issue of America's sort of psychological discomfiture at China's rise. I mean, which to me is at, le- at once, you know, kind of like it's blindingly obvious that 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 is a, a major factor um, among you know American political elites and you know in the American national psyche, if we can speak of such a thing. Uh, and yet, it's it's practically impossible to do anything with that observation, at least in my experience. I mean. What do you do with this? I mean, does it delegitimate American anxiety in some way? I mean, do you use it to like, uh, do you, see, I see, I, I can't help but sort of put this in the same bucket as things like white America's really ugly response to, you know, the growing proportion of non-whites in America to the fact, the fact that we're at it, you know, that white people are headed toward the reality of a majority minority country. And that's why we've seen the popularity of this nonsense, like this replacement theory and stuff like that. I mean, for me, I, I, I would just sort of try to make people aware of what this discomfort does. I mean, to me, it, it makes us inflate the things that China actually does do. And, and it c- contributes to this kind of 10-foot-tall syndrome or to sort of hypersensitivity to, to you know Chinese misbehavior, IP theft or militarization of the South China Sea or what have you. It's sort of in the same way, again, is like the way that white American anxiety makes whites in this country sort of susceptible to the suggestion of, you know, the prevalence of black on white crime or to the suggestion that Latin American immigrants are rapists and murderers. You know, somebody once said that, I hear. Uh, So suddenly we're, we're really attuned to things that, you know, Xi Jinping says, like, He'll say something that that is is if you think about it, not so horribly offensive. China will move closer to center stage in in world affairs. Why shouldn't it? After all, I mean, it is a, a growing part. It's responsible for you know the plurality of growth in the world. It has a fifth of the world's population. Why shouldn't it? Right? I mean, why should that bother us? Other you know national leaders make similar pronouncements, and nobody. That's nigh, but for China, we're, we're hypersensitive to it. What do you do with this uh, idea of psychological discomfiture? How does it fit into your argument?
1: In many ways, I I make the argument that I think that the most critical, uh, I think that actually sort of the fundamental challenge that a resurgent China poses to the United States. I mean, yes, there is uh, there is a, it is a multidimensional challenge, and we uh, we talk about the military components, the economic. Diplomatic, technological, and those components are all very real. But I think that the ultimate, uh, the, the ultimate competitive challenge for the United States is psychological. And I'll, let me actually just t- to answer your question a little bit more in a, in a little in a little bit more of a fulsome manner. Just go on a, a little bit of personal digression. So I came of age in the nineteen nineties. It's the heady nineteen nineties. So it's peak triumphalism in the United States. The U.S. economy is booming. The Soviet Union has collapsed. And when I was growing up. I very much believed in kind of the end of it, or or I shouldn't say I believed it, but I should say I perhaps subconsciously internalized it. When I was growing up, I regarded American preeminence not as a potentially transient condition. I regarded it as an inbuilt condition. It was just inbuilt into my own worldview. I thought that it was an inbuilt fact of life. It was an inbuilt uh, fact of world affairs. I think that one of the challenges for the United States is, so if you go back just 30 years, so now we're in 2022. If you go back to 1992, China in 1992, it was still relative to, to now, it was still quite quite impoverished, quite isolated. And we really did think that it was on the wrong side of history. We thought that its conception of modernity had been dis- dealt a decisive blow with the implosion of the Soviet Union. It's not just the fact of China's resurgence. It's also the speed with which, it's, which, with which it has occurred. It's the multidimensionality of that resurgence. And so I think that in many ways, the biggest challenge for the United States is going to be, how do you, first of all, uh, recognizing that you're not going to be able to achieve a decisive victory, number one. Two, appreciating that your principal competitor is a country that only 30 years ago you thought had been relegated perhaps to the dustbin of history. And three, recognizing that there's cohabitation is inherently ambiguous because you, there isn't an end state. There isn't some decisive resolution. It's It's about coexistence. So I don't have a good answer. I don't have a good answer, but I think that we will have to um, you know, we will have to adjust. We'll have to adjust. And we'll have to adjust. We'll have to adapt. We'll have to coexist. But I think that that psychological challenge, and, and I think that in many ways, I'll just make one last point. Uh, America's response to, uh, to China's resurgence, the, the kind of the hypervigilance, the, the tendency to ascribe strategic vision to any and all uh, pronouncements, even though in some, you know, China is not immune to strategic hubris. China makes mistakes. Uh, sure. The Belt and Road Initiative hasn't, you know, it was this much-touted project. It's run into mistakes. Um, I think that China's pandemic-era diplomacy has been quite, uh, quite inept in many ways. Uh, but this tendency to be hyper-vigilant about what China's doing, to ascribe strategic vision to everything that China's doing, I think it's a reflection in many ways of that defensiveness. It's a reflection of that psychological anxiety. So, um, I do think that that psychological anxiety, to some extent, it is kind of inbuilt when you are the world's preeminent power. Um, but I think that it's that anxiety, that inbuilt anxiety, is compounded when your principal competitor is so is so antithetical to you in so many ways. So yeah, the yeah. question is not how do we eliminate that anxiety because we can't. The question is how best do we manage it so that it doesn't manifest in destabilizing ways.
0: Yeah, as I've said before so many times, China over the last thirty years has knocked out so many of the sort of load-bearing walls of American exceptionalism. Sure, It just has gone against, you know, right up against these ideas. You're not supposed to be able to innovate if you're an authoritarian Mm -hmm. country. You're not supposed to have, Christ, a a, a robust
1: market economy if you're a communist state, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, and so on and so on. And I believed in those. And I should say just by way of that sort of going back a little bit to that personal digression um, and, and just in full transparency, when I was growing up, I very much subscribe to those notions. They've obviously proven to be, you know, they've proven to be wrong. But I very much believed growing up. I said China, uh, China cannot innovate. It can it can steal intellectual property. It can copy. It can imitate. But it can't innovate. That that presumption is a, has proven to be wrong. I thought that. As globalization grew more entrenched, I thought that globalization would spell maybe not the demise of authoritarian systems, but that it would significantly curtail their ability to to exist. That presumption is proven wrong. So one of the, so, and I I hope that I convey a little bit of this in in the book. But certainly, as I um, not only just as I wrote the book, but as I've just been watching you know world affairs unfold, um, I've been realizing how many of my own assumptions were wrong. Uh, and what I've been trying to do is. You can't always be right, but what you can do is you can, you can. One, you need to acknowledge when you when you're mistake when you when you have mistaken views. You first need to acknowledge that you've made mistakes. Uh, every we all make mistakes, and then you need to learn. And so, I certainly I've been updating my views of China in terms of its its ability to innovate, uh, the ability of its political system to adapt. So I've been updating my views of China. I've also been updating my views of Russia, frankly. I didn't think that Russia would invade Ukraine because I said to myself, Russia is going to incur so many consequences if it invades Ukraine. Shouldn't that kind of cost-benefit calculus dissuade uh, Putin from from doing what he did? Russia obviously invaded. So, so I very much right now, I'm in the process of learning. I'm in the process of interrogating my own assumptions, correcting my mistaken beliefs, updating my priors, and learning as much as I can in real time, and hopefully rendering more considered judgments as a result. As as we should all be. I mean, very much as we should all be. So one of the things that
0: that, that has come of China's ability to continue to deliver us surprises, and as you say, this, this kind of uh, ascription to them of this, you know, strategic foresight and all this, is that we have a real difficult time assessing China's actual intentions. And, you know, for me, that's one of the two basic questions, right? That that, that we have a, a lot of difficulty achieving consensus on. You offer a really great overview of what everyone in the field thinks, um, from those people who who believe that China is basically just trying to make the world safe for autocracy, to people who really think that China is pursuing total, you know, hegemonic dominance. But we don't, we don't have a consensus, anything close to that, uh, nor do we have a consensus on China's capabilities. You know, what's the balance of its, of its uh, capabilities minus its problems and challenges, right? So we obviously need that, I mean, if we want to formulate a policy. So where do you sit when it comes to right-sizing China's intentions and capabilities?
1: So I I was really I shouldn't say was I, I remained very deeply influenced by an article by by Joel Wuthnow. I think he published it in 2019 in the Asan Forum, which I don't know if it I don't know if that outlet still exists, but but at least in 2019 it did. And um Joel Wuthnow he's based at National Defense University and he he very very comprehensively surveys uh, sort of the you know, High level, you know, high level documents, official documents from the Chinese Communist Party, important speeches given by by President Xi and and others, and he, in a very rigorous you know, manner, he says, you know, here's the evidence, here's what we can glean, and obviously we're not privy to sort of, you know, she, you know, we're, we can't sort of get inside Xi Jinping's mind, and we're not privy to some of the most innermost deliberations occurring between uh, President Xi and his advisors. But there's a lot that we can glean, and and Joel Wolf now he. He, he documents that evidence and he says that very esteemed observers can render very different judgments uh, and they can render those very different judgments in very using very sound analytical processes and so I was very I, I remain very influenced by that piece and so I think that we shouldn't dismiss out of hand any hypothesis about china's intention so whether whether someone believes that China simply wants to address its socioeconomic challenges make the world a little bit safer for, For autocracy, or whether one believes that China wants to overtake the United States for global preeminence, it wants to uh, revise, if not dissolve the the present order and establish a more Sinocentric order, so a more maximalist conception. I don't think that we should dismiss out of hand any of those hypotheses. I think that we should continue to debate, we should continue to engage competing hypotheses. What I do in my own book, in part because I, I don't think that there is sort of a settled answer. I try to bring in the pairing of intentions and capabilities. Because when you formulate foreign policy, or when you formulate policy towards any country, and particularly a competitor or an adversary, you have to assess not only its intentions, but also its capabilities. And so I kind of sidestep the question of intentionality in my book by posing this (laughs) thought experiment. And it's 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 a it's it's a little bit of a kind of a cheeky sort of evasion, but I I think it's a cheeky evasion in the service of promoting a more sort of tempered view of of what China can actually accomplish. So what I say in the book is, or the thought experiment I posit in the book is, let's assume for argument's sake, even though there is a debate, as we've discussed, let's assume the maximalist case of China's intentions, that China, it wants to overtake the United States for global preeminence. It wants to dissolve the current system and establish a a Sinocentric order. So let's assume the maximalist case of its intentions. Let's leave intentionality, that variable constant now then if we if we leave the intentionality variable constant or hold it constant now we can focus a little bit more clearly on what capabilities china would be able to bring to bear in service of those objectives and i think that if we focus on on china's capabilities we see that china obviously its power has grown enormously across in, in every dimension military power economic power diplomatic power um, so there was an article in, which I believe I quote, an article by Gerald Siegel in 1999 in Foreign Affairs entitled, Does China Matter? Well, obviously, it very much does matter, uh, as, as we've seen by China's growth over the past two decades. But China does face very significant obstacles. There's a familiar litany of domestic challenges. We talked about demographics. We could talk about environmental degradation. We could talk about, I would argue, the growing insularity of of, of the circle of advisors uh, closest to to Xi Jinping. Uh, We can talk about zero COVID. And then externally, of course, I think that one of the major Achilles heel, maybe the principal Achilles heel for China is that even as its economic centrality continues to grow, I think that its estrangement from advanced industrial democracies is also growing. And it's not clear to me that until and I I would argue that until and unless China is able to establish some kind or or restore some kind of baseline of trust, some kind of baseline stability, in its interactions with those advanced industrial democracies, it's not clear to me that China can come to dominate its own region, let alone dominate world affairs. So, again, um, let's not let's not understate what China is capable of. Let's not understate how much progress China has made. And let's not understate how many prognostications of collapse China has defied. But let's not let the pendulum swing too far in the other direction in which we believe that China is just kind of inexorably going from strength to strength. It has significant obstacles at home. It has significant obstacles abroad. And so I think that, yes, China is going to endure as a, as a linchpin of geopolitics. But I, I think that rather than thinking about a power transition between the United States and China, we should be thinking again about coexistence between the two countries.
0: Let, let's, for the rest of our, our, our time here, I want to focus on uh, the way that you conclude this book, which I think is sure. fantastic, with, with these eight principles that you go through one by one. Let's let's do these. They're very worth discussing. Sure. Um, because, you know, more than just a critique, you you actually do lay out a proactive set of ideas for how we should found a new foreign policy. And I think there's some fantastic ideas here. First, you talk about, and this really echoes a theme that threads throughout the entire book, is to prioritize the renewal of America's competitive advantages. So you start that one out with a really apt metaphor that's drawn from your experience as a boy when you were a competitive
1: swimmer. Mm -hmm. I'd love for you to share that with our audience. Oh, absolutely. So Uh, so it's hard for me to believe because I'm so out of shape now, but I did actually swim competitively when I was, when I was younger. And uh, so when I, I remember, you know, very early on when I started swimming, my, you know, my swim coach, you know, gave a piece of advice. Now she was obviously giving it in in, in a swimming context, but I think that it's very applicable to, to life, to geopolitics. And she said, she said a lot of swimmers who are just beginning, she said, they make sort of one of two mistakes, kind of one of. Sort of two core mistakes the first mistake is they dive in the pool and they just keep going they never come up for air they're just thrashing, thrashing swimming as much as they can and when they do that they might get you know they might uh, they might make some progress but then you know they collapse because you know you, you have to breathe um, or the other risk is that if you just blindly are swimming thrashing um, and you're not aware of where you are vis-a-vis your competitors you stand to you, you can't make adjustments that you need to make. But she said that the other risk, and this is the risk that I, I I sort of spend more time on in in the context of this first principle, is she said another mistake that that sort of that new swimmers will make is that whenever they come up for breath, because you have to come up for air, whenever you come up for air, you look left to see where your competitors are, you look right to see where your competitors are, and she said that if you spend too much time looking left and looking right, you're going to lose forward momentum that you need to swim your own race. And you know the advice that she gave to us is look. Every every individual has a different physique. Every individual has a different swimming style. And she said, "You can't be another swimmer. You can only be yourself." So her right. advice, her exhortation was, um, get you know the more as you as you begin swimming, as you continue swimming, develop a sense of you know what is your swimming style. Um, how often do you need to come up for air? How do you swim your best race? Um, what is your physique? And really focus on swimming your own best race and doing a better job at swimming that race. So her advice was, you know, when you, when you swim a race, every, you know, every few breaths, when you come up for air, you know, gently look left and gently look right to get a sense of where you are, but focus primarily on mastering your own strokes, mastering your own, uh, you know, your swimming technique and really just doing the best job that you can to swim your own race.
0: Yeah. Uh, The other metaphor that always comes up is uh, a running race Mm -hmm. and which has the advantage of, of, allowing one strategy, which is to trip the other guy, which seems to be a, a, a large part of the current American strategy vis-a-vis China. <laughs> so I, I think I, I love yours, but the running race also works. Yeah.
1: yeah, but it's interesting with running. So there, there is a, you know, with running and or, you know, cutting somebody else off or, or tripping somebody else up. And there's a debate right now in you know, in the United States and thinking about China, sort of what is the right, what is the formulation? So, you know, do we, um, do we trip up our competitor or do we run faster ourselves? And so there's sort of this debate about what is sort of the balance between the two. You know, my own, my own instinct is that even though there are going to be, there are going to be cases in which the, I think particularly when it comes to sort of technological competition, uh, obviously, I think recent years have drawn, you know, drawn attention to the reality that unalloyed interdependence unfettered interdependence between two competitors it does produce certain security vulnerabilities and so obviously there are going to be cases in which the united states needs to disentangle selectively so that it's mitigating those security vulnerabilities but i do think that the bulk of of u.s competitive effort needs to be on running faster itself and 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 doing better itself because again i I was i was talking earlier about just kind of sheer proportions You know, when you have a country of roughly 1.4 billion people, when you have a government that is heavily subsidizing the cultivation of frontier technologies, uh, I think there's only so much that you can do, particularly if you're acting unilaterally, there's only so much that you can do through export controls, sanctions, sanctions. Um, and, and, and other, and other measures, there's only so much that you can do to stymie China's technological development. And I think that what we've seen in recent years is sure. I think that the United States has created, has created challenges for China. You look at, you look at the competitive woes facing Huawei, you look at the difficulties facing SMIC uh, and China right now, it views its own, it it views the cultivation of its technological reliance, not only as an economic imperative, but it's a national security imperative. And China recognizes right now that it's nowhere near being able to achieve it's nowhere near achieving self-sufficiency in in the manufacture of semiconductors that will be essential to its development so yes the united states can certainly it can slow china down it can create a lot of problems for china but do i think that the united states unilaterally can indefinitely stymie china's technological development no i i don't which is why i think that the bulk of america's effort needs to be you know china is going to do what it can to strengthen its technological development, and the United States should should do the same. And I think that the CHIPS Act is, is is a good step in that direction. But the United States really needs to be focusing principally, not exclusively, but principally on, on how it can bolster its own edifice of technological innovation.
0: Though you, you warn against trying to out-China China, China in, in our efforts to compete, what are some of the areas in which you think the U.S. is actually contemplating policies that would qualify for you as trying to out-China China?
1: So I think I, I worry about I worry about the potential the potential for us to succumb to that risk when it I think principally when it comes to economic competition and technological competition you know the reality is that because America's political system is organized very differently than China's political system uh, you know the United States is not going to be able to mobilize the level of resources uh, in the same first the level of resources and it's also not going to be able to mobilize resources in the same way that China does so for example it's difficult to imagine that the United States would be able to uh, to execute kind of a, a parallel version of the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, but the argument that I try to, you know, or, or that it would be able to subsidize uh, sort of the cultivation of frontier technologies in the same way that China does. But the argument that I would make is that the United States is not China. China is not the United States. If I were talking to you know to, Ch- to Chinese officials, you know I would give them parallel advice. Look. You shouldn't try to out America, America. The United States has certain unique competitive advantages that you're not going to be able to replicate. So, so take the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, The United States government is not set up to disperse funds and to conceive of infrastructure projects abroad in the same way that that China does. Um, And what we're seeing with the Belt and Road Initiative is so, one, it's not only that the United States should not try to out China, China. I also would argue that it really doesn't need to. Um, yes, China has has made significant inroads with its geoeconomic statecraft, but I think that the the narrative that China's geoeconomic statecraft has been just sort of a, a, a complete success, unmitigated success. It's is, not true. It's, it's, true. it's not true. Record. I mean, I and it's I not, I, yeah. I would draw attention to you know two scholars in particular. You know, you look at uh, you know Professor Ong at the University of Michigan, uh, and then you look at now you look at Professor Wong, Audrey Wong uh, had an excellent piece in uh, in foreign affairs and she was I think it was last year and she was looking at basically just a very meticulous assessment of China's geoeconomic statecraft and, and her assessment is that the strategic returns that have accrued to that economic geoeconomic statecraft they've been kind of underwhelming. So I think you know if we look at the actual record, we you know what has China's geoeconomic statecraft produced, I think that the actual results should give us a little bit of comfort. And two, again, going back to the swimming metaphor, rather than trying to execute sort of of a parallel Belt and Road initiative, let's figure out what are America's competitive advantages when it comes to development work? Um, What are the comparative advantages of our allies and partners Um, and and leveraging those comparative advantages? So I, I think I worry about the risk when it comes to competing economically and technologically, because we see you know, we see the sums of money that China is pouring into subsidizing technology. We see the sums of money that China is pouring into developing infrastructure. So there's a natural impulse to say we're getting left behind. We need to match whatever they're doing. But one, not everything that China is doing will automatically succeed. And two, we're organized differently. So we should play to our strengths. That's right. So
0: though the United States clearly has something it should be learning from China, uh, just as China
1: has plenty... What would you identify as some of the things that China maybe could teach us? Sure, so I think that I think one of the clearest lessons is, and I think in part it's because of the way that China's political system is organized, but we have seen that when China identifies uh, when China identifies certain objectives as being of sort of national and or perhaps even existential importance, it is able to mobilize resources in a pretty extraordinary way. It is able to mobilize companies. In a pretty extraordinary way, it's really able to kind of galvanize a sense of national purpose uh, when it identifies. So, if you look at, for example, uh, I, I think that if you look at um, if you look at the Trump administration's initiation of tariffs against China, uh, the the journalist Bob Davis and Ling, Ling Wei they talk in their book Superpower Showdown they they liken the initiation of the Trump administration's initiation of tariffs they liken it to a Sputnik moment for China, in which China afterwards China recognized or, or or came to believe. That achieving greater technological self-reliance, it was a matter of national security, and so when China sure. makes a decision, when the when the, the Chinese leadership makes a decision that certain imperatives have reached that level of, of constituting national security imperatives or even existential imperatives, it does know it, it. not only mobilizes resources in a really remarkable way, but I think again it it galvanizes the sense of national purpose. I think that one of the biggest challenges for the United States right now is we don't seem to have that sense of national cohesion you know you mentioned earlier the the challenge of political polarization uh, and I, i'll make the point here and i and i perhaps kind of uh, pre, you know, presaging some of the discussion that we'll have later on um, even though the bulk of my book is, the bulk of my book is is sort of externally focused so it looks at uh, right sizing the competitive challenge from china right sizing the competitive challenge from russia looking at the sino russian relationship but candidly if if Americans are are preoccupied with tearing themselves apart and and fighting one another, then a lot of the discussion about how we compete more sustainably with China and Russia becomes moot. So I think the yeah. one le- you know one lesson is, um, what can we do to forge anew that sense of national cohesion, that sense of national purpose? Um, and you know I think interestingly, and I like this point that, and I'll stop here. I like this point that Jude Blanchet. Makes a jubilant out of CSIS. Uh, he gave a very interesting interview last year to the Economist, in which he said, "If you look at if you look at the rhetoric coming out of of China, China doesn't have an America strategy. China has sort of a China strategy. China is focused on you know where is it that China wants to be in the world. Whereas he said that if you look at the United States, there's a lot of discussion about what should our China strategy be, rather than you know what is it that America broadly seeks to accomplish in the world." So I think that another lesson is, rather than thinking about narrowly what is our China strategy, we need to be thinking about leaving aside China, leaving aside Russia. What is it that we're trying to accomplish in the world? And you
0: no, know, that's really the the essence of your book, right there. I should I should also add that you know we did have that sense of national purpose. I mean, the Sputnik moment idea sure. was coined originally, you know, in reference to the United States, and it really sure. sparked you know, something that culminated in us with the moon landing in, in 1969, right? Sure. So we can can you get back to that. I want to move on to the second principle, which I think is, is is related to the first, which is regard the power of America's domestic example, not as a supplement to external competitiveness, but as a precondition for it. There's uh, something that you, you raised, which I thought was really great, uh, a quote from Samuel Huntington back, I think, in the 1960s from the Trilateral Commission report on the crisis of democracy during that decade. He, he said, if American citizens don't trust their government, why should friendly foreigners? Um, I think in in these first two principles, uh, your your principle one about you know uh, prioritizing American renewal, and the second about making America's domestic example paramount, not a supplement to external competitiveness, but you know a precondition to it. Uh, I, I I can't help but think, but you know, you Ali Wine, you can say, let's get our house in order first, and few people are going to object, right? when Beijing says it, you get your house in order first, we, we tend to, let's face it, we tend to allege whataboutism. Mm-hmm. Uh, we shut down the conversation with that. Or we we take a certain comfort in knowing that, hey, you know, we have a mechanism that can correct our our moral failings. It's called democracy. It's an open society. or Or in the fact that, hey, at least we can talk about these problems openly. What do you make of that? I mean, should we be hiding behind that or is it more important for us to actually take these criticisms on board and do something about them
1: well the latter the latter so you know my feeling is that whatever the whatever the origin of a critique whether whether the critique uh whether the critique originates from let's say activists from within the United States whether it originates from allies or partners or whether it originates from competitors i think that you evaluate the the criticism on its own merits—it's kind of comparable to, um, you know, my preferred process for, uh, you know, if I were ever an editor. Say, if a news, uh, let, if I were ever say like an op-ed editor, or if I were a, an editor of a journal or a magazine, and if I were to receive a submission, um, I would want to evaluate it not on the stature of the author, not on the credentials of the author, but just on the merit of the idea itself. And if if an author submits an idea that deserves publication let's publish it regardless of whether regardless of the stature of the author so a criticism a criticism uh if if the criticism is valid analytically intellectually then we should take it on and i think that during the cold war now you might say you might say you know who are you to to be lecturing us look at all of your deficiencies but if the criticism is meritorious you take it on so just as an example during the cold war the soviet union uh Particularly between, so between, just for some historical context, between 1945 and 1960, you have roughly three dozen countries that become newly independent, comprising uh, pre- predominantly non white populations. And the United States was very concerned that because these newly independent countries constituted uh, principally non white populations, they were concerned that Soviet propaganda or Soviet narratives about America's treatment of racial and ethnic minorities would resonate with, these, with the populations in these newly independent countries. And so the Soviet Union would say, the United States, you say one thing about how you treat minorities, but look at how you actually treat minorities. And even though, of course, a lot of what the Soviet Union was saying, look at how, the Soviet Union obviously had a horrific record of treating its own minorities. And yes, there was a lot of, a lot of its critiques were inter, interspersed with propaganda and whatnot, but there was a certain truth in the critique. And so I think that, uh, and, it, and it was a critique importantly there was also uh, mirrored by critiques coming from within uh, many activists in the united states were saying look the united states it's not uh, look at how it treats look at how poorly it treats african americans look at how poorly it treats other minorities and that co- that confluence of criticism originating from within and criticism originating from without it led to those landmarks that we were talking about earlier those landmark supreme court decisions it led to civil rights legislation so my feeling is look whether whether a critique comes from an activist inside the United States, whether it comes from uh, an ally or partner in Europe or Asia, or whether it comes from a competitor such as China or Russia, if the criticism is meritorious, uh, take it on board and say, you know, we, we acknowledge it, we need to do better, and we're going to get to work. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's talk about the next
0: two principles together because they're really related. Number three is do not use competitive anxiety as a crutch. We've talked about this already uh i wonder whether it's <laughs> too late but mm. um and principle 4 which is frame internal renewal as an explicit objective of us foreign policy not as a desired byproduct so you put the chips act as as maybe uh, a good example but that again that was sold and very much couched in terms of competition with china so too with the innovation competition act even build back better more more broadly Were these things essentially just an outgrowth of competitive anxiety or a desired byproduct of U.S. foreign policy, or are these renewal projects, as you would prefer, the explicit object of competition with China?
1: I think that they were probably more the former, probably more a a response to competitive anxiety, but uh, I think that – so I think probably more a response to competitive anxiety, but I I think that to the extent that they – you know, to the extent that our competitive anxiety compels us to take steps that we should, we meaning in the United States, compels us to take steps that we should have been taking anyway, I I think it can be useful. The United States should be able to marshal its sort of internally, the political will, the political wherewithal, the political capacity to address these issues without having to invoke external competitors. We should not be in a position in which we can't manage a pandemic or we can't, manage income and wealth inequality. We can't repair infrastructure on and on and on without invoking our competitors. So just as an example, one example that resonates with me, I think I want to say that President Biden said it on the sidelines. I don't know if he said it on the sidelines of last year's uh, sort of uh, major sort of climate conference or, or uh, I I don't remember the context, but I remember, I think it was last year and and President Biden was, uh, was asked about, was asked about uh, climate change efforts in the context of U.S.-China competition, and he gave an answer that really resonated with me. He said, um, he said that we should be pursuing decarbonization and we p- should be pursuing clean energy efforts not to outcompete China, but because we want cleaner air for our grandchildren. Right. I think that that's perfect. I think, that, <laughs> I think that, that rationale is perfectly uh, is perfect, not only perfectly legitimate, but it doesn't need to be supplemented. If and if that so if the desire for if the desire to have to to leave our grandchildren with cleaner air, if that rationale doesn't suffice in getting us to pursue decarbonization to pursue climate change efforts we're we're you know we're in a very, very problematic situation. So I think that we have to strike this balance, and I think that you've kind of you've kind of gotten at this this tension, but I would say that as much as possible, You think about competitive anxiety as sort of one tool in the toolkit. Don't use it as a crutch. And I'll make one other point in terms of why we shouldn't use it as a crutch. I think it projects, I think it sends a wrong message to allies and partners. I think that a lot of allies and partners, they say to themselves, um, they're looking to see how the United States comports itself. And when the United States reflexively invokes China to justify everything that it's doing at home, everything that it's doing abroad, I think our allies and partners say to themselves, well, uh, is the United States losing that looks confidence? looks desperate. Yeah. It, it looks, and yeah, I, yeah. I think there's a sense, you know, is the United States losing confidence in its own capacity for renewal? Is it? Is it, you know, tethering itself to China a, as a crutch? I think that if the United States sends a message to its allies and partners that says, look, we're vigilant about what China and Russia are doing, we will respond as appropriate to safeguard our vital national interests, but um, we are going to take care of these pressing socioeconomic challenges at home because that's what we should do as a democratic government. I think if we do that, and if we demonstrate that we can get our own house in order, uh, we'll send a much better message. One last point, I promise, just sort of a, a PPS, which is that obviously internal renewal, the, you know, renewing your competitive advantages at home, renewing your competitive advantages abroad, those, those necessarily have to take place in parallel. Uh, it's, it's not as though you can, you can leave aside the rest of the world and say, we're going to fix ourselves at home and then turn to the rest of the world. You have to pursue those efforts in right. parallel. Certainly. Um, I think that the point that I was trying to emphasize with that principle is we, sh- we should, we should recognize that if we don't do greater work, uh, to renew ourselves at home and don't do greater work to demonstrate that we can, because just as if you say to the rest of the world, we want to, we want to assemble coalitions to manage pandemic disease, to manage climate change. I think that even your greatest well-wishers will say, well, gosh, Given how you've dealt with your own challenges at home, if you can't even attend to those, how are you going to take on bigger projects? So so internal renewal, external renewal, they will necessarily take place in parallel, but I think that we need to do a better job of demonstrating that we can get our own house in order. Competitive anxiety as a spur and
0: competitive anxiety as a crutch. There's a really fine, fine line. Absolutely. To it's, it's, it's hard to, to, yeah, to know when one ends and the other begins. Absolutely. Uh, principle five is about enlisting allies and partners in affirmative undertakings. And yeah, it's, you know, our allies are are certainly one of our great competitive advantages globally. But do these security and intelligence sharing arrangements like, you know, the Quad, August, the Five Eyes, uh, what have you, do they reinforce China's sense of being ringed in and ganged up on? Uh, Do they actually end up pushing us even deeper into just the kind of great power competition framing that you
1: argue against, isn't there that danger? Sure, and I think it depends on how they're conceptualized. So I think in and so in it's sort of an interesting kind of you know parallel. So you know I, I said a few minutes ago that China probably feels that no matter what it does, it's going to be seen as revisionist. It's going to be seen as upsetting the the war order. It's going to be criticized no matter what it does. And I think that there's right. sort of a parallel argument, which is that even when the united states goes to great efforts not to mention china in its public statements when it goes to pains not to mention china in justifying its initiatives china is going to interpret them as being as as, as being designed in opposition to china so i think that to some extent if you look at the quad if you look at aukus if you look at sort of the the five eyes um, you know china is going to perceive them as as working to sort of hem china you know china in on the other hand i think that the united states and its allies and partners uh, they can be creative in how they've conceptualized those undertakings such that even if there is a component of those initiatives that is aimed at contesting China's influence, that that element doesn't doesn't become sort of the sole raison d'etre for those initiatives. So take the quad. The quad is a good example. and I, and I do think that we're seeing uh, we're seeing that the quad, I do think that it's sort of diversifying its remit in, in it, diversifying its remit in a good way. So as an example, the quad, Uh, To the extent that the Quad can uh, pool the resources of its constituent members to uh, expand access to COVID nineteen vaccines, that's good. Uh, To the extent that the four countries can pool their resources to help Southeast Asia accelerate decarbonization efforts, good. So, of course, these initiatives—you know—an impetus for them is obviously pushing back against you know China. But I don't think that it has to be the entirety of of the rationale. And I think that Hmm. I think it behooves the United States allies and partners to be creative. Uh, and Susan Thornton has talked about this in the context of the Quad and other efforts that we can think creatively about making their remits more affirmative, so that they're not just designed to to contest China. So there's a balance.
0: Yeah, it, that's it's going to be a pretty tough sell, sure. to Beijing, to convince sure. them that it's anything but an anti-China alliance. Sure. All right. Um, you know, one one of the great things that you talk about uh, under this principle five about enlisting allies is you caution against conflating. The U.S. agenda with a democracy agenda, and you warned that some of our allies would balk at an all-encompassing sort of maximalist approach. So, oh, do you think that the Biden administration, uh, in its whole sort of democracy versus authoritarianism framing, is doing just that? Though, I
1: mean, what is the uh, what has the response been from allies to this? I mean, my sense, I mean, in my sense is that the administration is pursuing sort of a number of. I would say it's kind of pursuing three efforts in, in parallel, you know, so one, one effort is, and I think the, I would say it's sort of the foundational effort is, you know, going back to something we were discussing earlier is uh, really investing anew in, in America's sort of internal competitive advantages. And I think that that effort has to be foundational. So if you look at the, um, whether it's the CHIPS Act, whether you look at sort of the interim national security strategic guidance, I do think that this, this notion that we can't really think meaningfully or, or, or prudently about external competition Unless we attend to our internal renewal, I think that that's sort of line of effort one. So, what can we do to replenish those internal sources of competitive advantage? Uh, certainly, another effort is you know stitching together this kind of increasingly you know dense fabric of uh, coalitions, kind of issue-specific coalitions to contest uh, China and Russia. But a third line of effort is. Ensuring one uh, that we strengthen communications and impose or, or uh, build guardrails to ensure that we don't succumb to great power war, that we avert great power war, and also to preserve cooperative undertakings where, where possible. Uh, I thought that Secretary Blinken's ch- sort of much awaited China speech did a good job of this. So he, you know, he recognizes that obviously competition between the United States and China it's inbuilt, it's intensifying, but he, you know, he stressed that uh, we we don't have to succumb to a new cold war. Uh, and he identified several concrete areas in which the United States and China could cooperate and must cooperate so uh, you know my sense is that you know we are you know our approach to china and russia it's it's evolving but I think that uh, in responding to Russian aggression in responding to sort of china's coercive you know conduct, I think that what we're seeing is not so much the the development of sort of some this overarching coalition to push back against China and Russia because there's a recognition that Um, our allies and partners are not necessarily going to. So you have some allies and partners that might align themselves with the United States to contest China, but not the other way around. So I think that what we're seeing is, you know, uh, issue-specific, dynamic sort of coalitions to to contest China and Russia, but recognizing that you're going to have to meet allies and partners where they are. You're going to have to recognize that they won't necessarily participate in universal competition. But I think also a recognition as well that, uh, we have to keep lines of communication open. We have to preserve cooperative possibilities. We have to avoid great power war, especially in the nuclear era. so it's a complicated balancing act, but I will say that you know even though I, I in the book I set forth a critique of great power competition, um, I think that what we 're seeing right now is that the United States it does have a very impressive capacity to to mobilize coalitions. You look at the coalition that it mobilized in response to to Russian aggression. Uh, IPEP, I think, is quite impressive uh, in that it has a number of countries, a number of member countries uh, that are members of ASEAN, um, and and the Quad has a new lease on life. So I, I think we do see that the United States, it has an ability to, to really tap into that unrivaled diplomatic network. The, 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 the challenge is going to be you know, sustaining those coalitions over time and recognizing that even as competition with China and Russia grows more intense, you don't have any alternative but to cooperate with them on certain issues. And and I would make the argument, you, know, you see this narrative, I, I think you saw this narrative you know, shortly after Russia invaded Ukraine, and, and it's a narrative that even gets played now, which is that you know, the United States, it needs to work solely with like-minded countries to advance its vital national interests. And I, I don't think that that kind of formulation is really realistic. China and Russia, they're too large. Yeah. They're too central to global geopolitics. There's really, as far as I can tell, There's no analytically plausible scenario in which the United States can kind of put China and Russia in geopolitical quarantine or put them in a geopolitical closet, take away the key and say, we're going to be able to advance our national interests. It won't work.
0: Right, 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 right. Number six, your principle number six is appreciate the limits to American unilateral influence. Uh, In this, you know, you quote Rana Mitter, uh, who is one of my favorite uh, academics in, in the China sphere asking a very important question which is what are legitimate aims for China? how would you answer that? I mean let's take the, the post post-war international order um, as, as a, a good example of this for example, we we seem to to bristle at China's aff- attempts to uh, re- restructure or even just reform um, things like the Bretton Woods institutions uh, but this whole, Order, as we understand it, it was, as you point out correctly in the book, was part and parcel of a bipolar, Cold War system, and its social norms, its institutions, its very purpose was tied to the prosecution of the Cold War and to the containment of communism. So, did that make it then inherently unsuitable to the very different realities after 1991, uh, and, and for whatever period that you know we've now entered? Is China wrong to want to see some of the rules in this rules-based order updated? No, isn't this a legitimate aim? No,
1: not at all. And I think that it's it's only natural. I mean, leaving aside, I mean, leaving aside even just ideological considerations, if you just look at just the sheer balance of power, uh, if you just look at the balance of power, the so-called rise of the rest, emerging powers, you know, any any just and sustainable architecture of world order needs to be more consonant with that evolving balance of power, leaving again, leaving aside ideological considerations. So it's obvious that the the current post-war order, even though I think it is becoming it is becoming more multilateral, it is doing more to incorporate emerging powers, there is still a, a disparity, or there still is a misalignment between the the constitution of the post-war and by constitution I mean kind of the, the principal powers who who undergird the post-war order there is still a misalignment between the system as it is presently constructed and the evolving balance of power so so I don't think that whether it's China interestingly you know when China criticizes the post-war order as being insufficiently reflective of the evolving balance of power that critique isn't unique to China even many of America's allies and partners express that same critique that it needs to be more representative so no I, I think that China's you know, China's desire to be more represented in the postal order is is wholly legitimate there are inevitably going to be differences between Washington and Beijing over you know how Washington asserts itself in the system and how Beijing asserts itself in the system but the this the the, the the desire to be more represented the desire to exert greater sway is is wholly legitimate um, and I think that you know you you mentioned you know professor mitter's observation i think that what we are likely to see is it's not just kind of a bipolar sort of negotiation over sort of the rules of of the road as they were between the united states and china but um, i think that i think it can't just be a us china conversation i think it has to be a much more inclusive conversation whether it's on uh, digital issue issues of uh, connectivity issues of trade issues of infrastructure issues sure. of security it um I think it needs to be a much more expansive conversation because um, you know European allies and partners, they might have different approaches. Um, even many you know countries in uh, in Asia uh, that are members of the quad, they might not necessarily you know align with the United States sort of instinctively. Uh, there, I think also uh, even though many countries have grave apprehensions about China's present conduct and its and its uh, potential, strategic intentions they don't want to decouple themselves from China's economy, perhaps to the extent that the United States does they're going to want to retain economic linkages so what I envision you know going forward is there's a there's a there's an increasingly stark recognition of this mismatch between how the, the how the postwar order is presently constructed and how it needs to evolve but I think that we're likely to see sort of an evolving negotiation and not just with the United States and China but with the United States China. Russia, France, Germany, you know, Australia, India, Japan, South Korea, um, and we also need to ensure that um, you know the great power competition framework. I mean, great, it only focuses on three countries. It focuses on the United States, China, and Russia. It's necessarily exclusionary, um, and even when you incorporate sort of that fuller array of countries that I just listed, it it doesn't include vast stretches of the developing world. So we need to ensure right. that whatever system we're designing, it's not only responding to the the preferences and the imperatives of the so-called great powers and sort of the, the the tier of powers beneath them, but we need to ensure that we really are being responsive to voices that have too often been left out in these conversations on how to design order. and And that's going to be difficult not only for the United States to do, it's also going to be difficult for China to do because the United States and China, they both regard themselves as exceptional. They both regard themselves as as being sort of the drivers of geopolitics, and they're both going to need to be more responsive. And they will require
0: guardrails on their relationship, which brings us to principle seven, where you say we should pursue cooperative opportunities that can temper the destabilizing effects of great power competition. Um, you know, you talk about the factors that make both the U.S. and China prone to errors of miscalculation. Uh, there's a lot in this section, but we'll just focus on this one thing. Uh, you know, these these miscalculations could lead to disastrous consequences. What are some of the things, just a couple of points, that you would like to make to, to, to see the U.S. at least address this shortcoming, the potential for miscommunication?
1: Well, certainly at a minimum, and you know, my sense is that you know the United States, in terms of establishing military-to-military communication, I think it has been making overtures. It's not clear to me how receptive China has been, how much China is is responding. But uh, it, the United States and Russia, even though their relationship right now is far worse than the relationship between the United States and China they at least, because of their Cold War history, they at least have some infrastructure in place for military to military communication. My sense is that the apparatus of military to military communication between Washington and Beijing is substantially more impoverished. So we need need to make sure that that dialogue is existing, that it's sustained, number one. Uh, Number two, we need to ensure that we, we need to take care that we don't regard, and I I made this point earlier, we need to take care that we don't regard cooperative undertakings as fool's errands, or that we regard them as exhibitions of strategic weakness. Um, we need to, and even if, even if there's a sense that the cooperative opportunities that, that presently exist, even if we think they're slim pickings, they're strategically inconsequential, we should avail themselves, we should avail ourselves of those opportunities nonetheless, uh, as, as confidence building measures. Because right now, I think that there's a sense in, in in most, there's a sense in Washington and Beijing that basically any kind of cooperation is impossible. And the more that belief becomes entrenched, the more it creates that self-fulfilling prophecy. So, if there are, you know, I, I was reading an article the other day about a, I think it's a, a collaboration between, I think a, I think a U.S. university and maybe a Chinese university, but it was a collaboration on um, space research. I, I think I saw some kind of, you know, uh, outer space research. Um, that kind of cooperation is good; should be encouraged. Um, if there is an opportunity, although when it comes to
0: space exploration, we're forbidden from cooperating with China, which is really, really, really very tragic, especially, you know, at a time where we're seeing, you know, yeah. Russia pulling out of the International right. Space Station.
1: Right, right, which is yeah. which is a very, very concerning development. Um, there might be an opportunity potentially for some uh, some limited uh, scaling back of tariffs on both sides. I think that that kind of development should be encouraged. And, and I would say that also, um, you know, one last, I think perhaps the ultimate guardrail, and I would like to see more of it, uh, you know, there are a lot of observers who, you know, they look at the phone call that just or the, the the conversation that just took place between President Biden and President Xi, and a lot of the readouts from the from the call said um, the call just underscored the 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 number of disagreements, the intensity of disagreements, what did it accomplish. And my feeling is that those those readings are in some ways missing the point. Um, when you have when you have the president of the United States, when you have the leader of China agreeing to have a conversation, the mere fact of their conversation is an important stabilizing force. It sends a signal that the two leaders are committed to talking. And given how strained the relationship is, I think that perhaps the most effective guardrail is a continuation of that leader level dialogue. So just to summarize, one, we do need an intensification of military to military communication, particularly between the United States and China, We need to avail ourselves of really any opportunities for even sort of slim pickings when it comes to cooperation to demonstrate that cooperation is indeed possible. And three, we need to continue leader-level dialogue, which may well be the the ultimate guardrail in the relationship. Fantastic.
0: Finally, uh, your principle number eight, which is rebalance in earnest toward the Asia-Pacific within economic focus. Uh, You know, great, but there is a strong sort of pivot allergy in Beijing. Sure. no, I had never met anyone in 2013 who didn't regard the pivot as some species of containment. Uh, and we may have tried to sell it back then as economic first, uh, and then only secondarily military. But um, because we sort of led with things like 2,500 troops in northern Australia, Beijing always read it as military first. Yeah. Uh, I I understand this, but the, the your 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 uh, desire to see this happen, but. I do worry a little bit about how it will would be, you know, perceived in China.
1: Well, there's a certain, and it, it gets to a, a discussion that we were having earlier. I think, in much the same way, you know, so China might say that no matter what we do, we're going to be perceived as being uh, hostile to the United States or disrupting the post-war order. And I and I, there's a certain symmetry of perceptions. So I think that no matter what the United States does, it's it's likely to be perceived as being, you know, hostile to to China. Uh, but I would, the yeah, reason for, enough. I think that the reason for rebalancing to the Asia Pacific, it's, I think that there's frankly a compelling argument to be made that that rebalance would be justified even if even if the Asia Pacific didn't contain China. I mean, if you just look at, I mean, leaving aside China, I think that sometimes people use, you know, the words rebalance or pivot as euphemism for focus more on China. Uh, but even leaving aside China, I think that Evan Fagenbaum is, is, has, has made this point very effectively. Uh, I mean, look at, you know, you look at Japan, India, South Korea, Taiwan, Indonesia. I mean, there are a number of, of significant players in in a, the Asia-Pacific outside of China. Um, and I think that if you just look at most indicators, whether it's, um, you know, which region is sort of the fulcrum of economic growth, which region is the sort of the linchpin of global supply chains, and which region is also kind of a litmus test in many ways for our ability to manage transnational challenges, it's, it's the Asia-Pacific. So I, I think that even leaving aside US-China competition, I think that there are a lot of rationales for rebalancing to the Asia-Pacific. And, and one of them is candidly, the United States, it has gone on kind of a strategic detour in the Middle East uh, after for about two decades after 9-11. Uh, it needs to- sure. I think it needs to kind of unwind that strategic detour. Um, I think it also needs to ensure that in, in Europe that it establishes more symmetric defense partnerships with its European allies and partners. So I think even leaving aside China, I, I think that there are compelling reasons to to focus on what I think is now and will continue to be the most consequential region for geopolitics.
0: That's, that's fair. That's absolutely fair. Finally, Ali, talk a little bit about how events since you submitted your manuscript, this, including, of course the Russian war against Ukraine, have affected your thinking. How do these events slot into the framework that that you've written? Uh, Has it only reinforced
1: your ideas? Has it caused you to rethink any of them? So I would say that, I mean, obviously Russia's invasion of... So I I drafted the afterword shortly after Russia invaded Ukraine. So necessarily when you write a book of this nature, you always kind of cringe a little bit because you know that it's going to be somewhat out of date necessarily by the time that it's eventually (laughs) published. But you know i would say that russia's invasion of ukraine for for me it underscores i think two core propositions of the book or two core arguments of the book um, it does underscore the limits to to unilateral us influence no doubt about it and you know the united states it um, it did a lot in the in the run up to the invasion by declassifying intelligence assessments of russia's intentions by warning allies and partners it did a lot to try to sound the alarm but russia ultimately invaded so russia's invasion by underscoring the, the limits to US unilateral influence, I think it also, as a consequence, it underscores the imperative of formulating a foreign policy that isn't purely reactive, that isn't tethered to what China and Russia are doing. Because if you predicate the success of your foreign policy, it, if, you're, if your benchmark for whether your foreign policy is succeeding or not is, do I you know, do I preempt every potential Chinese or Russian provocation, you're going to be disappointed pretty sorely. You need a foreign policy that, that acknowledges more candidly the limits to what you can do unilaterally and focuses more on what you can control. And that's that principle that in that concluding section about recognizing the limits um, to, to unilateral US influence. But that acknowledgement doesn't is not it doesn't signify fatalism. To me, acknowledging the limits to influence simply means you embrace reality. And that reality allows you, I think, to be more creative in your foreign policy. Um, mm, the second mm. conclusion that it uh, that it underscores is: I, I try in the body of the book to depict China and Russia as being sort of self-constraining or self-limiting competitors, and I think that Russia's invasion of Ukraine reinforces that conclusion. Yes, Russia. Yeah, I was
0: going to ask you about that. About you know what the, the, the chapter on the sign of Russian entente. Uh, you know whether your conclusions there were borne out, and yeah. I think they very,
1: very much I, were. I mean, yeah, and I'll make a couple of points on 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 that. So one, I think that Russia, again, in a very visceral, brutal way, it's reminded the rest of the world that you can't just focus on China. We're here. We, meaning Russia, we're here. We matter. We can wreak, you know, we can wreak a lot of havoc. We can exert a lot of influence. Um, but I think that Russia, in reminding the rest of the world of its enduring relevance, I think it really has undercut its medium to long term strategic outlook in many ways. And as far as the sign of Russian entente, yes, China and Russia—they they signed that they they avowed that in February that their relationship, their friendship, has no limits. They've doubled down on their partnership, but there are more and more prominent Chinese international relations scholars who are expressing concern that this entente could become a reputational albatross around China's neck. And for China, in the long run its relationships in the West are going to be significantly more consequential uh, to its long-term strategic outlook than its relationship with Russia. So the Sino-Russian Entente, paradoxically, it's stronger, but it's also more strained. And I think that China is, even if it doesn't betray that anxiety publicly, I would have to imagine that internally, as this war drags on and as the externalities of this war grow more pronounced, I would have to imagine that there's some concern among China's top uh, foreign policy advisors that we need to think about a way of winding down this war to limit the reputational damage Mm. that accrues to to China.
0: Absolutely.
1: Unfortunately, I need to catch a flight. There's so much more I'd love to (laughs) talk to you about. Sure.
0: (laughs) But but, uh, (laughs) let's move on now to first of all, Ali, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. Thank you. uh, To talk about this very important book, a book I should add, with more blurbs from more big names than just about any other I have ever seen. It's really quite an impressive roster, Thank uh, you. but well-deserved. Again, the book is called America's Great Power Opportunity, Revitalizing U.S. Foreign Policy to Meet the Challenges of Strategic Competition. And it's out now from Polity and available wherever you buy your books. Ali, let's move on to recommendations. But first, a very quick reminder that the Seneca podcast is powered by China. And as some of you may know, SubChina is rebranding very soon as The China Project. Uh, you can read more about that rebranding on our website. Uh, and it will be happening very soon. Anyway, whether it's sub China or the China project, the way to support the work that we do is to subscribe to China access our newsletter, which gets you all sorts of other perks, including, you know, the early ad free version of the Seneca podcast on, on Monday afternoons instead of having to wait till Thursday. Um, so, uh, the main thing is the newsletter. Of course, it's just a great all in one resource for the most important China news. If you haven't already done so, please sign up for the newsletter. Uh, you'll find it a really worthwhile read and a great investment. All right, on to recommendations. Ali, what you got for us?
1: So I want to recommend an essay by Andrew Nathan that he published in Foreign mm. Affairs last month in which he suggests that despite, I think, growing anxiety in the United States, that China might have might be making imminent moves on or might be preparing to make a move on Taiwan imminently. you know, He reaches a conclusion that China is is still thinking it, its temporal lens for thinking about Taiwan is still much longer. Uh, he doesn't see he he doesn't see from China's rhetoric and actions that China is betraying a sense of great or greater urgency than otherwise about pursuing reunification. And he also makes the point that if China were to attack Taiwan, try to invade Taiwan, even if quote unquote, it were to win, the war and its conceptualizing you know thinking about victory in such a horrific scenario is is, is strange but he said that even if china theoretically were to win uh, that victory would come at such great cost that it really could potentially spell the end of the, the the rejuvenation of the 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 chinese nation or the achievement of the china dream and so he he believes that uh, the china that that any invasion or attack it would be really devastating for china's long-term prospects he makes the argument that china is not Betraying an immediate sense of urgency to make a move on Taiwan, and I think that his his analysis I find quite persuasive, and I think that it it serves as a useful counterpoint to a lot of the analysis on on cross tensions that we presently see. That's a fantastic essay. It's really good.
0: I I think it's especially now uh, with Nancy Pelosi about to make her, her her trip. It's important that we read this for another perspective. Um, mine is going to be frivolous. My recommendation is a show called Clark, a mm. Swedish dark comedy on Netflix. And the reason I know about it is because um, a friend of mine in Seattle told me that uh, Michael Ockerfeldt, the the frontman and the guitarist of Opeth, one of my favorite bands, actually wrote this, uh, this show's soundtrack, which is really off-kilter and quirky and funny. Uh, it's a, a really, really dark... I mean, I don't know, I guess I've been on this weird Scandinavian kick where I've been watching Borgin and Occupied and all these other uh, Norsemen and all these other... Shows from from Scandinavia, but uh, fantastic! I, I love I love this stuff. Great sense of humor. Uh,
1: Clark on Netflix. All right, Ali, thank you so much. What a what a pleasure. Kaiser, the pleasure was all mine. It's it's always wonderful to be with you, and and thank you for uh, for talking with me at such length, and and really really helping me to uh, to reflect on arguments in the book, stress test assumptions and conclusions, and and I hope that we do this again soon. We will. We will. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina and is a proud
0: part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com or give a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at SupChina News and be sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Take care.